Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Back in the age of sail, a mysterious disease was claiming the lives of lots of the sailors who plied the seas, scurvy. In 1747, when the disease laid low much of the crew aboard the Royal Navy ship, the HMS Salisbury, the ship's surgeon, James Lind, spotted an opportunity. He chose 12 sickly sailors and divided them into pairs. Each pair was given a different potential treatment for scurvy. One pair got a daily quart of cider. Another drank spoonfuls of vinegar. Yet another got a concoction of horseradish. There was a mustard and garlic pair, a seawater pair, and two sailors were given citrus fruits. Otherwise, they ate whatever everyone else on the ship ate. In under a week, the sailors that had been given oranges and lemons were back on duty. Dr. Lin's experiments showed that citrus fruits, which are high in vitamin C, could cure scurvy. Though he wasn't the first person to suggest the benefits of oranges and lemons, he was the first to use a systematic experiment to test the hypothesis. In the annals of medical history, Dr. Lin's work on scurvy is considered to be the first ever clinical trial. Today, improved versions of his trials have become the gold standard for modern, evidence-based medicine. But there is a problem. Modern clinical trials are slow and can get eye-wateringly expensive. Some of them cost upwards of a billion dollars. And all that cost in time and money is also costing lives. Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist's science and technology editor. Today we'll explore how to shake up clinical trials and make them fit for the medicines of the future. We'll ask the scientist who pioneered a rapid COVID-19 treatment study called Recovery how companies and health systems can apply his techniques beyond the pandemic. And we'll ask how technology, from wearables to artificial intelligence, could make clinical trials much more efficient. Joining me for today's show is Natasha Loder, The Economist's health editor. Hi, Natasha. Hello, Alok. Natasha, can you tell me, just in the grandest sense, the role that clinical trials have performed in modern medicine? How important are they? Well, without clinical trials, medicine would be nothing more than trial and error based on anecdotal evidence, personal experience. And these days, you could imagine it would probably be based on social media memes. The world would be full of drugs and interventions that just basically did far more harm than good. And we didn't realise it. So you need these trials. So Natasha, when people talk about clinical trials, what do they involve? Can you just take us through it? 
Say you're testing a drug. Um, what you want is a situation where you have two groups of patients that are virtually identical. One group gets the drug and one group does not. You don't know who in the two groups have the drug and who don't. That's something that gets randomized. And that's a way that we figure out whether a drug has an effect or not. You would then monitor the patients. And what kinds of things are going through these trials? What needs to go through them? Well, all medicines typically would go through clinical trials, devices as well, like pacemakers, artificial joints, dental implants, MRI machines, artificial limbs. And then even surgical treatments these days would go through trials. Give me some timescales. How long is a typical trial for, let's say, a new medicine? How long does it take to carry out? There's no typical trial length and it will depend entirely on the the nature of the disease and the nature of the drug. Roughly speaking, what you're doing is you do have three phases of trials. You'll start with a small-scale trial of safety to make sure that your intervention is safe. And then you move on to phase two and phase three trials. Phase two is generally only just indicative of efficacy. It's still about safety. And then phase three, you would expect a definitive answer on efficacy either way. And then after that, your data is then packaged up and sent to a regulatory agency. Okay, so clinical trials, as you've described them, clearly they're a fundamental part of modern evidence-based medicine. So why are we talking about them today? Well, despite the constant drumbeat of good news with regards to new medical innovation, which we hear every day, behind the scenes, there is concern about the rising costs of clinical trials and how that's kind of impeding innovation. And the question has been ongoing for years. This isn't actually necessarily particularly new, although COVID brought it into focus. And a really good example is there is actually a new TB vaccine, which has been waiting in the wings for actually a number of years for a phase three trial. And the costs of that trial are so huge and the commercial potential in rich countries is actually rather limited. So that trial just simply hasn't happened yet. And so now the Gates Foundation is trying to organise the phase three and it's going to cost hundreds of millions of dollars. And for that, they're going to need governments to step in and to support this. And hopefully governments like the government of India will deliver some of this because TB is a huge burden in that country and a new vaccine would be a fantastic thing to have. I guess it also means that companies, when they're bringing out new drugs, if they know that it's going to cost a huge amount of money and time, perhaps it might sort of chill some of them into actually trying to, to do the work to get it to market, especially if it's a very sort of small market that they want to go for eventually. Well, this is absolutely the case. And of course, when companies do analyse the markets for drugs and the investment required, I mean, part of that will be how much it costs to develop these drugs. And so if you want more drugs for chronic diseases, which tend to be particularly costly to test with thinking cardiovascular disease or mental health conditions, then you do really need to find a way of doing trials much more cheaply and efficiently. Right, well, let's start looking at some solutions then. Natasha, what are scientists and others thinking about when trying to improve the situation with clinical trials? Well, to understand the problem better, I spoke to Sir Martin Landre. Sir Martin is Professor of Medicine and Epidemiology at the University of Oxford. He's also set up an organisation called PROTAS, which is hoping to make clinical trials smarter. He told me why trials have become unsustainably expensive and why, as we emerge from the pandemic, now is the time to shake up the way we do trials. 
Clinical trials are now costing hundreds of millions of dollars, in, in many cases for big diseases like cardiovascular disease or dementia, one or two billion dollars for a single trial. That's a huge barrier between innovation and implementation. And if we don't tackle that, clever, interesting new products simply don't get developed. In early 2020, though, Martin and some of his colleagues in Britain could see that the traditional way of doing clinical trials wouldn't cut it to find new treatments in the initial phase of the COVID-19 emergency. In February or March of 2020, this new virus was coming to the UK and that there was a real worry that if we didn't do trials to find out what works and what doesn't, large numbers of drugs would be just thrown at patients and we'd never know whether we were doing them good, harm or just wasting resources. So we would end up not using the drugs that do work, overusing the ones that don't and not knowing in any particular case what the difference was. And so our decision at that time was we have to make sure that a randomised trial is at the front line. And that proved to be really important. So Martin pioneered a clinical trial called Recovery. And the study started by taking existing drugs and seeing if they could treat COVID-19 infections. When we were designing Recovery, there were some really important considerations. First of all, we had to answer the key questions. One in three, one in four patients going into hospital at that time were not making it out alive. That's a terrible statistic and there were no known treatments. So number one, focus on the big question, can you save lives? But number two, recognise the environment. Recognise that there were going to be huge numbers of cases. Number three, that the patients were going to be very sick, very scared and alone because of the infection control measures. So what we had to do was strip down and focus the science in a way that made it practical at that coalface of the front door of the hospital when patients were getting admitted with COVID. Anybody can design a trial that nobody can do. Our trick was to design a trial that everybody could do. Tell me about the successes you've had. Well, the trial ran in every single hospital in the UK. 10% of everybody who went into hospital with COVID took part in the trial. And Within the first 100 days, we had the first two answers, actually. The first one was hydroxychloroquine, a drug which had been very widely touted. I happen to be taking it. I happen to be taking it. Hydroxychloroquine? I'm taking it. Hydroxychloroquine. Right now, yeah. A couple of weeks ago, I started taking it. Because I think it's good. I've heard a lot of good stories. Turned out to be useless in this setting. So it can be abandoned. Don't waste resource. Don't expose people to the risks. And secondly, was dexamethasone turned out to be very useful. A big medical breakthrough in the fight against coronavirus has identified a drug that could have saved thousands of lives. Dexamethasone, a familiar steroid that's been in use for 60 years, can be remarkably effective. The drug cuts the risk of death by a third for patients on ventilators and by a fifth for those requiring oxygen. And that result was so clear that it sounds quick to get from first start to first answer in 100 days. It was three hours to get from announcing the answer to it being NHS policy in every single hospital. And it followed around the rest of the world. Uh, We have in total studied and got results for 10 different drugs now. We've actually got four treatments that are beneficial and they can be used in combination. We also found another six which had been 
widely touted, promoted, often frequently used around different parts of the world, which turned out to be ineffective. And that's a really important you know, piece to this. If you don't know, find out. Trials do that. And once you've found out, act on the results. And if it's a good trial, it's very clear and obvious what you should do to act. Recovery cost about $20 million for about 50,000 patients. That's about $500 per patient, which is actually quite cheap because other work suggests that the median costs of clinical trials run to about $40,000 per patient. So, Martin, do you know how many lives have been saved? It's impossible, of course, to count the deaths that didn't happen, but the estimates are somewhere in excess of a million lives have been saved as a consequence of that one result on dexamethasone, let alone the other results. Now we're coming out of the pandemic, what kind of lessons are you hoping to take on in this transformation of clinical trials that you've been talking about? Well, the pandemic and recovery in particular showed that doing things differently was possible and showed us the way. And so we established Protas as a not-for-profit organisation really to take those lessons together and say, how can we deliver high quality, large scale clinical trials that will help find better treatments for uh, preventing or treating the commonest diseases such as heart disease, common cancers, dementia, depression, and common infections. How much do you hope to reduce the cost of trials by? We're confident that it's possible to run these clinical trials for about a tenth or so of the common everyday cost. So where a trial for a new treatment for, I don't know, heart disease, lowering cholesterol, preventing heart disease might cost in the order of a billion dollars, it's perfectly possible to do that for you know, $100 million. Now, $100 million is still a lot of money, but it does make it possible to develop new treatments. And it also gives you more options in terms of making the trials more inclusive. So often trials are done in a limited uh, set of the population, typically white, typically living close to a big academic medical centre. And yet, of course, one wants to uh, treat patients from all backgrounds and all healthcare settings. So if we can reduce cost, if we can make it easier to participate, both for the patients and for the clinicians, then actually we can get results that are much more widely applicable. So cutting out 90% of the costs of a clinical trial is certainly a nice trick. Can you give me a quick idea of how you're doing that? Yeah, so there are a number of ways in which to reduce the cost. The first is to design the study in such a way that it collects the information you need, not the information that you always collect out of habit. To design the study in such a way that it's focused on actually answering the question you asked, as opposed to the many other questions that people might have in their minds. The second piece is then thinking about making the trial easy to participate in. Recruitment and the challenges of recruiting people to to trials is a huge reason for them failing. And then there are important things one could do with technology to do the trial right first time and much harder to make mistakes which then make the answers less robust. And finally around data... There is a lot of information that's being collected in the routine healthcare system all the time. Using information that's already there is in many ways much smarter and much cheaper than going out and hand collecting your own special information for your trial. So using 
a combination of design, ability to participate, accelerating recruitment, using technology and using data will all drive you know, significant reductions in cost. Thank you so much, Martin. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Okay, Natasha, so it's possible then to imagine better, cheaper, more efficient way to do clinical trials. But I mean, how do we actually get that into practice? I mean, how do you get big companies and universities and others to actually begin to use them? And and more importantly, I guess, uh, how do regulators begin to use them in their approvals process? Well, we've already seen Sanofi and Moderna sign up to the protest effort, and it looks like they're interested in trying to innovate on the cost of large-scale trials. And that's kind of encouraging because there was a risk that the approach that Martin took could have just been seen as a pandemic exception. But I think we shouldn't expect this approach to take off too quickly. It is still early days. The other thing is that a lot of trials that go on are actually run on behalf of industry by contract research organisations. And those organisations benefit essentially by running large trials because they make their profits on them. And so you kind of will need to see quite a lot of things happening for this approach to sort of filter much more widely across industry and academia. I did hear about one startup contract research organisation called Lindus Health that is trying to innovate on low cost trials though. I mean, it it seems like it's counter to companies' interests if they're running trials in the way that they've been run traditionally to actually do something very different, right? Unless there's some incentive from regulators or others to do so. Well, it depends. It's certainly the case. Innovation is really important in finding cheaper ways of doing things. But I have a suspicion that it's also going to need governments, public health systems, and even academics as well to sort of do their bit to enable lower cost research. And that could involve things like creating registers of patients who are willing to do clinical trials, or even using electronic health records to identify patients that might be eligible for trials. Because recruiting patients is a really big and time-consuming part of these efforts. But then the other element is that governments need to make sure that the regulations they impose are only as burdensome as necessary to make sure trials are safe and effective. The more red tape and the more requirements you put up around these trials, the more expensive they're going to become. Now, we've talked about the lack of participants, the high demands on healthcare staff and the costs and speed. What about another problem with clinical trials in terms of diversity? How much of a problem is diversity when it comes to working out whether interventions work or not? Well, it's hard to put a figure on this, but it's certainly the case that lack of diversity is a really important issue when you are trying to understand whether your drug works in all the people who are using it. And if you don't balance your trials with regards to men and women and minorities, there's a risk that the drug may not work in these groups. Having said which, if you impose restrictions on the people who run clinical trials about how you do these trials, you are actually going to increase costs. And so it isn't possible to have it both ways. If you want to increase diversity, if you want to make mandates about how these trials have to take place, you're going to have to accept that that will increase costs. 
I guess the trade-off there is if the costs are increased, but the results are more applicable to a wider range of people, then that's a cost that perhaps is is worth having. Yeah, but we've right? no um, way of numerating that, and so we don't know. Well, that. so we don't know that, and so I mean, one of the complaints about the diversity mandates in the US is that asking for cultural competency training for trial staff. It sounds nice, but you know, is this really bringing any kind of meaningful benefit to the operation of the trial or the diversity itself? I'm not sure. What you need is a clinical trial to work it out. <laughs> you do, actually. <laughs> yes, you do. Next, we'll look at how technology is being developed that can provide new ways of doing trials. We'll also examine whether or not they can do any better than the slow and expensive trials that we've been hearing about so far. That's all coming up. Before we go on with the episode, let me remind you that we'd love to know what you think of Babbage and all of our other podcasts from The Economist. Just head to economist.com slash Babbage survey to take part. This is your chance to have your say in the future of the show. It really won't take too long to fill out and we'd love to hear from you. Thank you very much for your time. Natasha and I will be back in a moment. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Today on Babbage, we've explored what's wrong with clinical trials. And now we'll look at some methods that might make them more efficient. Traditionally, clinical trials are based at hospitals that are associated with universities, and they rely on participants, who are usually patients at the hospital, committing to further examinations and regular checkups. The trials are time-consuming for the participants and the clinicians involved, all of which, of course, adds to their price tag. But technology could help to ease all of this burden. To find out more, I spoke to Ewan Ashley. He's a cardiologist and geneticist at Stanford University. We spoke to him last year about using wearable devices like smartwatches to diagnose various conditions. Ewan's also used that technology to improve clinical trials. We not uncommonly will recruit individuals quite literally by putting posters around, let's say, the campus. And there'll be little tear-off slips with a phone number on it. And then you'll hope somebody goes by, tears it off, phones up the number. And then you would arrange for an in-person visit where somebody would sit down and over the course of up to an hour, walk through the consent form. And it's usually 20 pages of language. And then they'd sign it. And only then would you begin to start the study. And there usually be visits to come back. Ewan has conducted one of the world's first fully digital and decentralised clinical trials. There's a supercomputer in everybody's pocket these days, a smartphone, and the idea that many people are wearing uh, wrist-based sensors in smartwatches to use that for clinical trials and to that, that those devices were potentially capable of doing all the things that we would normally do kind of by hand, which is to say recruit a patient, alert them to the study, have them sign up, have them do the consent form but also do a lot more, which is potentially to deploy the study, which is to say if you're in group A or group B for a study, it could randomise you to one or the other. 
It could even collect the data for the study and then finally share the results with you at the end. You can sign up essentially while you're standing in line for coffee and download the app, go through the consent form yourself and sign up for the study. Ewan's trial was a behavioural study about physical activity. This was an observational study where we basically asked people to fill a questionnaire every day through the app. We also measured their physical activity. We offered them to do a fitness test at the beginning and the end, which was a walking test. And uh, essentially, we, we mapped all of that information to measure 24-7 physical activity and sleep uh, and managed to define across many demographics of society as well as geographical areas. The aim was to observe the relationship between physical activity and health. What it did, though, was feed into our randomised trial, which was a follow-up where we tried to encourage people to exercise more. So things like prompting people that haven't walked 10,000 steps yet, you know, you've only walked three or 4,000, keep going, you know, being encouraging that way, or every hour saying, oh, you haven't moved, you should stand up and move around. And so we actually were able to test in this format, this digital format, in a randomised manner, uh, which of those interventions was most effective. Ewan and his team found that the digital trial certainly made recruitment a lot easier. 40,000 people signed up over the course of the first two weeks. So this was just mind-blowing for us because we're used to, you know, a few hundred people over a few months if we're lucky. And I think that uh, then, you know, just a few days later, we were getting data for the study coming in. So we were analysing it literally a week after the study began, uh, which is just an entirely new situation compared to where you're spending months trying to recruit people uh, manually and uh, taking time for each one. And I guess you sign up lots of people, but what proportion of them actually stuck it out to the end? Uh, was this a significantly larger number than perhaps the usual method of doing everything in person? That's exactly uh, the issue that we found. So it's, although it was very easy to join the study uh, digitally, it turns out that it's also quite easy to leave the study digitally. In the end, it still falls out at significantly higher numbers than, than we'd have, even though we lose 80 to 90% of the people we still end up with three or four times the number of people we would have in a much faster period. So to give you an idea, 40,000 people signed up for that study. By the end, there was only about 5,000. But normally it would take as many months to get to 500. And the people you recruited, were they significantly more diverse too than, again, the manual methods? I think that's an area definitely of concern, but it's also one that's changing. I think the people who sign up early to any kind of technological study in in general tend to skew a bit younger. But overall, I think that these devices and the digital age is is really something that is being appreciated much more by seniors. And actually, with just a little bit extra effort, we're now able to recruit across a diversity of age groups, Uh, but still something we're actively working on. And in terms of the data you're getting from this kind of study, I'm assuming it's much more interesting and accurate and there's more data points than simply using questionnaires and other sorts of self-reported information that perhaps you might otherwise have been doing. Yeah, it's a completely new world from that perspective. And if you think about physical activity, well, normally you would say to people, literally you'd ask them to either fill in a diary, which were things like how many flights of stairs did you climb last week or how many minutes were you walking? And I can barely remember what I had for breakfast, never mind you know how many stairs I climbed last week. But now you have a situation where somebody has a wearable device or they have a phone in their pocket and it's measuring in real time all the time. So every step is, is actually a data point. It's just a much richer data set with which to analyze and, and really a much more accurate data set at the end because it's measuring people in their environment in real time. Not only did they recruit far more participants, the study itself was a success as well. 
In the end, it turns out that these very minor nudges are just enough to remind people to move more. And although they didn't move a lot more, it was about 10%, every single intervention we tested actually significantly increased people's physical activity. Do you see these sorts of digital clinical trials as a model for the future of these kinds of studies? Or or, or is there going to be a sort of hybrid approach between in-person and digital data collecting? I think we have only scratched the surface of what the digital realm can bring to these clinical trials, to be honest. I think it's so much more effective and efficient uh, from a time and cost perspective. And so I do think that this is the new way of doing things. For a while, I think there'll be a hybrid approach. But I think in the end, very many clinical studies, I think, will be able to be started and completed entirely digitally. I'm back now with The Economist, Natasha Loder. Natasha, you and Ashley there outlined how his sorts of trials with wearables work. Can you outline for me what the limitations of these kinds of trials are? Well, look, they're a great idea, but there's lots of things you can't do. You can't ensure that patients are complying with all the things that you want them to do. There's a risk that they may get bored and not interested in the trial. If you're participating in a trial that involves visits to a hospital, then, you know, you kind of get invested in that trial and much more likely to follow through to the end. And then there are some kinds of things that you just can't do remotely, like taking a blood test or having a procedure or an infusion. And all of those things will limit what you can really do with remote monitoring. And there are other types of digital clinical trials as well, aren't there? Um, Just tell me what you've been discovering on that front. That's right. Some researchers have been trying to use artificial intelligence to take patient data and then build virtual patients so that you can conduct completely virtual clinical trials. So so computer simulated humans, basically. Yes, although not whole human, but a bit of a human. Alex Frangi is one of those scientists. He's a professor at the University of Leeds in Britain, and he's developing what he calls in silico trials, meaning on silicon computer chips. And all this involves using real patient data and characteristics to carefully build a virtual patient or part of one where they can model interventions on. I spoke to him on understanding how this technology works and how we know it works. Creating virtual populations and virtual participants is the first step. The second step is to create virtual interventions and virtual examinations. So this is the creation of models that replicate the process of doing a particular imaging technique or implanting a particular medical device or taking a particular drug. And the third element is equivalent to estimating the response of that therapy into that particular patient. So presumably the idea here is that you can get faster results and you don't need to put people on placebos. I mean, are there any other advantages to this sort of method? Yes, there is a number of advantages. So one of them is the speed. The other one is the comparability because of the lack of having to do any randomization. Another advantage is that you can test more thoroughly because there may be certain, say, extreme cases of patients where we either have too few of them because the disease is rare or because the particular patient phenotype is rare. Or it might be that it's just unethical or impractical to collect that information. Imagine devices for pediatric applications or imagine, for instance, that you want to test the 
impact of a particular brain electrode in terms of hitting brain and the risk that is imposed to the brain. So in many of these situations, you wouldn't be able to actually run an actual physical trial. And that's where these other approaches become particularly convenient because we have nowadays very good models of a lot of characteristics connected with physics, physiology, biochemistry, and anatomy. I mean, presumably our ability to run virtual clinical trials is going to depend on how well we understand the biological systems that we're looking at. So if we were trying to do a virtual clinical trial on the brain, that might be something of a challenge. Are there some particular areas of medicine that are particularly suited for virtual clinical trials because we understand that area of science very well? Yes. So you're absolutely right that, in a sense, one limitation of in silico trials is that because they're driven mostly through what we call mechanistic models, so models where we understand the mechanism of action of the therapy, but also the mechanism of the disease itself, that may limit some of its applicability to the knowledge that is available. There are, however, a lot of areas where we can already use this. One example is cardiovascular devices, valves and coronary stents and peripheral devices. It's also important in the area of musculoskeletal devices, particularly in things like spine implants, like hip replacement, knee replacement, shoulder therapies. How are you testing that what you've created actually works and that this is a good approach? So a year ago, we developed a publication where what we did was compare the results of an in silico trial on a particular device. It was a stent for intracranial aneurysms. We compared the results from our in silico trials with the results from three conventional studies, two randomized controlled trials and a registry. And what we show in that study is that we could reproduce the findings of those three conventional studies to a 5% accuracy in a fraction of the time that those studies took. I mean, how satisfied are you that your results are close to what you need to be for this to be a success? So there is, I would say, an increasing amount of evidence that these are reliable approaches and they do have limitations like any other approach, but that in some situations they are a much preferred approach to animal experimentation, bench testing, and possibly also human testing. In any case, one thing that I would like to stress is that what we advocate in this area is not that we should use in silico trials as a complete replacement of other approaches, but rather that there are situations where you could identify devices and interventions that are not going to be successful through modeling and simulation. And in those cases, you shouldn't go all the way to do a human pivotal trial. However, what we propose is that you use these approaches to get a better understanding on root causes of failures, on initial testing of medical devices. And as you get every confidence through this approach that this is a likely good solution for the particular disease you are trying to treat, that then you move with more confidence to do pivotal trials in humans that are likely to be more successful because you're going to have less, less surprises. And therefore, you will also manage the cost associated with this. With all the studies that have been going on in virtual clinical trials, has anyone figured out what sorts of cost savings that they are bringing? Yes, that's an excellent point. So we know, for instance, the study that I mentioned before, this study on flow diversion devices, 
it took us about three months to write a study, and each of the three trials that we replicated cost probably between 20 and 40 million pounds, and it took between six and nine years from the design to the actual delivery of the evidence. And then lastly, maybe we could just, you know, look forward to the future, and what would you see likely to be happening in this field in the next few years that might be of interest? So I think that the first thing I see happening is that these approaches will become part of the portfolio that regulators will consider as a valid source of evidence. So I think this will become mainstream, and I see that happening within the next five years. And also, I think modeling and simulation will help to elucidate where are the knowledge gaps that you were referring to, Natasha, before, so that we actually direct not only what devices we should be developing or supporting, but also where the the basic science gaps that need to be answered so that our models can become more effective for addressing unmet clinical needs where devices need to be developed. And I believe that there will be a transition from a focus on developing devices for the average patients to develop devices that work more effectively for different subgroups And that will be facilitated by an approach that is more exhaustive in the way we understand the relationship between the phenotype of each patient and the the response to the therapy. Thank you so much, Alex. Thank you. All right, Natasha, virtual clinical trials, they sound like a good start. Where are the problems with those? Well, the problem is you have to have characterized the part of the body really, really well and know inside out, literally inside out. And there'll be a limited number of situations in the human body where this is the case. And then once you've kind of created your super duper model, you then need to prove that you can trust them. And so you have to do a trial of the virtual environment itself, a trial of the trial, if you like. And all this will take time. But once you've got them, obviously, they're incredibly useful. And being able to avoid having to do uh, trials that are going to fail is going to cut out a huge amount of cost in the system. Okay, so we spent this episode looking at several ways that trials could be improved with various bits of technology. But as you've laid out, reforming trials is still an urgent issue. So given what we know about the problems, given what we know about potential solutions and the sort of roadblocks to those things, where do you see the next steps if trials are to be brought kicking and screaming into the 21st century, what what needs to happen? Well, actually, I think one of the problems is just awareness. And I don't think there is a huge global appetite at the moment for improving the way that clinical trials are being run. The UK government is making some noises about this at the moment. And that's really because we've started doing far fewer of these trials than we have in the past and the government wants to remain competitive. But, you know, many countries are not facing the same sorts of pressures. The big countries that are doing these trials, the United States, China, Japan, I'm not convinced that there's the same sorts of pressures there. But there is a need and what does need to happen is that governments do need to start paying a little bit more attention to this problem and regulators and having a think about how they could lower regulatory burdens, how they could make it easier to identify patients for trials, how they could make it possible to use electronic health records, for example, to gather data about patients who are on trials. It sounds like there's a lot of need for this change and there are ideas, but Are you optimistic that it's going to be possible to change such a global and conservative industry? Yes, I think over time. And also if 
People like Martin Landre managed to prove that they can do trials much more cheaply and companies like Moderna and Sanofi do show that they can get great trials done at high speed. You could certainly see that these ideas might pick up in other places. All right, well, let's hope for more efficient clinical trials though, because all of that biotechnology that you and I talk about all the time, it's not going to get here without some more efficient and better clinical trials. Natasha, thank you so much for taking us through all of that. You're welcome. Thank you. Our thanks also to Sir Martin Landre, Ewan Ashley and Alex Frangi. And thank you for listening to Babbage. Don't forget that you can read more of Natasha's reporting in The Economist, as well as all the rest of our journalism. This week, I particularly enjoyed an article in the Science and Tech section, which explains why the market for dinosaur fossils is booming. Go and check that out by taking out a subscription to The Economist. Get your first month for free at economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskett with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. The executive producer this week is Jason Palmer. I'm Alok Jha and in London, this is The Economist. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.